Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender diverse people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Priya Kunjan. Living in the Australian settler colony means contending with the hard truths about structural racism against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and working to be actively anti-racist. In early July, I spoke with Kuku Yelenji and Coco Lama Lama woman Kerry Klim about her experiences of racism in the workplace as an Aboriginal woman. Kerry generously shared the story of her ongoing fight to hold her former workplace accountable and to push for anti-racist change, as well as the cumulative psychological impacts of years of everyday racism. I also spoke with Associate Professor Chelsea Watago, a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman, about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples' lived experience analyzing, navigating, and fighting institutional racism, as well as systemic resistance to anti-racist transformation. You can listen back to that episode at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. It's called Surviving and Resisting Institutional Racism. Today's episode builds on those discussions with a focus on racism, mental health supports and suicide prevention for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Before we go any further, a content note. This episode includes discussion of suicide from a clinical perspective. If you need to speak to someone about this, you can reach Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. If you're a young person up to 25 years old, you can call Kids Helpline on 1-800-551-800. That's 1-800-551-800. Both lines operate Australia-wide, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So as mentioned previously, This episode of Women on the Line builds on earlier conversations about systemic racism and mental health through a discussion with Dr. Tracy Westerman, a proud Nyamal woman from the Pilbara region of Western Australia, and an internationally recognized expert in Aboriginal mental health, cultural competence, and suicide prevention. Dr. Westerman founded the Westerman Gillia Institute for Indigenous Mental Health, which has a strong focus on improving access to clinically and culturally appropriate mental health services including intervention and suicide prevention programs for Indigenous children and young people in particular. Dr. Westerman joins us to speak about the need for these services and how the Westerman Gillia Institute is building them from the ground up in training an army of Indigenous psychologists. My name is um, Dr. Tracy Westerman. I'm the Managing Director of Indigenous Psychological Services and the Founding Director of the Westerman Gillia Institute for Indigenous Mental Health. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Westerman, for taking the time to join us on Women on the Line. So could you begin by telling us about what prompted you to found the Westerman Gillia Institute and a bit about the core aims of the Institute? Essentially, it was basically being an Indigenous psychologist for about a couple of decades now. And just to be honest, it was really born out of frustration with seeing the lack of guidance that, frankly, the, the, the training actually provides psychologists in relation to best practice with Indigenous people. But it was actually triggered by something fairly emotional. Um, being in Western Australia, we have the highest rates of child suicide in the world in our Indigenous communities, and that is something that is absolutely heartbreaking that we've now... That's not something that we want to actually wear the badge for in, in terms of, you know, what we actually see globally. 
Now, what actually happened was we have had four successive government inquiries into the Indigenous suicides, mostly around the Kimberley region and the Pilbara region. And um, the government inquiries concluded pretty much the same thing, and that was that our highest-risk communities are our most remote communities. And I guess what we know is that, you know, with remoteness comes a lack of access to services and the use of culture into the mix. It becomes the reality that it's very, very difficult for Indigenous people to actually get the services they need. So we had 13 deaths by suicide of beautiful young Indigenous children in the Kimberley that was the subject of the Fogliani inquiry. And having read through that, my frustration came over to the, to board over to the point that as a psychologist, I thought, well, actually, I can fix what the coroner concluded, and that was that most of these children died essentially as a result of a lack of access to services. So that day I founded the Dr Tracy Weston Indigenous Psychology Scholarship Program, which was via a $50,000 personal donation to essentially increase the number of Indigenous psychologists in remote communities. And then the Western and Julia Institute started actually developing really, really quickly. So it, basically what happened is it's really captured the hearts and minds of Australia to the extent that we're now funding and mentoring and supporting 15 Indigenous psychology students to go back into those remote communities within nine months of the Julia Institute. So it's really, really fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's such a such a tragic and avoidable origin for this story, but at the same time, amazing to see the progress that the Institute has made in such a short amount of time to really increase the numbers of Indigenous psychologists that are able to, I guess, provide very specific kinds of care and support and assessment as well. Yeah, definitely. And definitely um, myself, I actually was the first Indigenous person to complete a master's, combined master's and PhD in clinical psychology. So the mentoring aspect, to be honest, that was the thing that the students said have had gained the most, and that's from the feedback that I'm getting constantly, is just the, the personal mentoring and in best practice that, that they're actually being provided with. So it's really essential. I think this is self-determination in action with Indigenous people guiding what Indigenous community need and going back to these communities and doing the heavy lifting and we are playing generational catch-up because we just don't have the number of Indigenous psychologists we need in those communities. Yeah, definitely. And also, you know, speaks to the kinds of institutional environments that Indigenous psychologists in training normally have to navigate without access to uh, senior Indigenous psychologists who are able to mentor them to develop their practice in a culturally safe yeah. and appropriate way. Yeah, absolutely. And I found that myself when I went through university. I was absolutely, um, I, I guess, really disappointed and stunned. There was lots of emotions around it, but I came down from the Pilbara, very remote area of the Pilbara, thinking that I was going to learn all this amazing stuff to go back and help my people. And three years into my psychology degree, the word Aboriginal wasn't even mentioned. And basically, that was the passion I developed to set upon a path to ensure that that did not continue for future generations. So as much as I'm an incredibly proud psychologist, psychology is predicated and built on this, this principle of cultural exclusion of Indigenous people. And so that's what we're driving in the Julia Institute to ensure that that doesn't continue. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, any assessment of Indigenous people's mental health is impossible to disentangle from the impacts of colonisation, which sort of leads on from what you were saying before. So what does it mean to take this into account? And how does a generalised approach to mental health service provision fail Indigenous people, and particularly Indigenous children that are experiencing acute psychological distress? Yeah, I think the difficulty is where we've actually really dropped the ball across Australia is that we're too generic, actually. So 
the difficulty is is that as a practitioner, all I'm concerned with is if I've got a high-risk Indigenous person in front of me, what are the sorts of things within the individual that are actually treatable? What are the things that we actually know from a risk, risk perspective I can actually address to ensure that that risk is reduced? So, yes, obviously the history of colonialisation is, is critical in relation to the impacts. However, what we need to be really clear about is how that manifests you know, with, with an at-risk Indigenous um, person who's at risk, for example, of suicide. And what we're finding, obviously, is that racism um, actually accounts for a significant amount of risk when it comes to Indigenous people that come into services. So that is something that often is a real struggle because then we go, OK, racism accounts for so many of our suicides and so much mental health distress. What do I then do as a clinician to treat that, <laughs> essentially. And so what we need to be um, providing practitioners with is things that are really, really clear that you can actually use when you've got a, an at-risk Indigenous person in front of them, and that's what we really haven't done very well in Australia at all. Yeah, and I guess the provision of psychological support services, especially within a more Eurocentric, like Western-centric framework, mm. can be very individualising and really sort of narrow down on the person themselves rather than more of a holistic view looking at social effects such as racism which really do um, have a serious impact on people's mental health. Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, we know that racism manifests or impacts in the same way as trauma on the individual. We also know that there's a very strong evidence base around the environmental and parental modelling of trauma. So we see this, I guess, with very, very um, traumatised populations, for example, Vietnam vets come back from war, we actually know that trauma gets passed down through genetics, through environment and biology. So it's no surprise to me that you have incredibly high-risk clusters of communities, for example, like the Kimberley, where the origin of it started from forcible removal. So that's that's what, you know, compromised attachment, which actually then, then means that people will pass that compromised attachment down to future generations. But what that actually means is that we're not going into those high-risk communities and applying best practice in relation to trauma and um, all those sorts of things that we know that the origins of it are actually in colonialisation. Yeah, and a lot of uh, sort of mainstream responses do tend to frame it around individual responsibility or community responsibility as if this isn't something um, that has physiological and psychological impacts across generations and is not, you know, a choice. Yeah, yeah, and the interesting thing is I see that a lot. I see the, the significant difference between, for example, I've said this a lot, that when a non-Indigenous child dies by suicide, we rightly look to systems and, and how we can do better as a society. How did this happen? How can we as a society do better? But when an Indigenous child dies by suicide, we look for deficits in our culture and in our families as, as explanatory of. So, for example, it is the alcohol, it is the sexual abuse. It's actually not factual. And frankly, it's, it's, it's unhelpful and unkind because what it actually means is we lack empathy for bereaved Indigenous people and essentially we blame Indigenous people for the suicides of our own children. So there's a very different narrative that gets applied to Indigenous suicides, for example, compared to non-Indigenous suicides. And what that means is that the governments then start to fund things like alcohol restrictions. They actually make community responsible for highly complex things like suicide. So it has these really significant knock-on effects but essentially what we need to do as leaders is actually be really clear about the sorts of things that are explaining these suicide deaths. Yeah, and, you know, that's definitely not being addressed or empathetically uh, engaged with with things like the banned drinkers register or the cashless debit card in the, in the Kimberley, mm. for example. 
Yeah. Look, we know, for example, that look, it's not about the alcohol. It's actually about a, a big, a big predictor of suicide for decades now has been shown to be this concept of hopelessness and helplessness. Now, hopelessness and helplessness speaks to I don't believe that the things that are available to others are available to me. I don't believe that I have equal value. So when you have race-based policies, such as alcohol restrictions and Northern Territory intervention, what we've actually found, not surprisingly, is that in those regions, the suicides have escalated horrifically, for example, in the Northern Territory, where people's human rights are restricted on the basis of the colour of their skin, essentially. Those suicides have increased by 160% since the 10 years of the Northern Territory intervention. That doesn't surprise me. And so then, then what you're left with is, OK, how do you actually deal with racism as a clinician? And so our research has been really, really clear about the sorts of things at a clinical level that practitioners can actually use at an individual as well as whole of community level to address those unique factors. I mean, you've already been talking about this a bit, but I was wondering if you could comment a bit further on some of the complexities of intervening in situations where mental ill health is either caused or compounded by experiences of racism. So whether this is at school, in the workplace, or via systems of child removal and incarceration as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a dual thing. I mean, we know, for example, that racism manifests as trauma, which basically means from the Aboriginal perspective, it activates the flight or fight response. And some of you may be aware of, you know, when you see threat, your body essentially arms itself to survive. And so it activates this thing at a physiological level called a flight or fight response, which enables you to either defend yourself or run from, from danger. Now, it's interesting that Racism at the Aboriginal level manifests in that same way that you're waiting for a racist comment to hit or you activate you know, a trauma response because you're arming yourself around the threat, but the basis of the threat is racism. The next bit is essentially that there's this thing called the cultural empathy gap that exists when people aren't exposed to, for want of a better phrase, to blackness. And what that means is that there's some really interesting and powerful studies showing that non-Indigenous people react less to the pain of Indigenous people. And so the solutions are kind of dual. They're in figuring out how to develop robustness at the Aboriginal individual and community level to deal with racism. And the next bit is how do we increase the cultural competency of practitioners so that they have more empathy for the experience of Aboriginal people as their patients. Mm, definitely. Like this is the sort of conversations that we've been having recently. I mean, I'm thinking about things happening around the AFL and racism, and there is both a complete lack of understanding and empathy, but also this idea that traumatized Aboriginal people are also then put in the position to educate people who are expressing uh, racism. I always say this, and we know this from, from the practitioner's perspective, the first step to your healing is that your trauma is validated. And so putting racism in a trauma lens is so powerful around that because essentially exactly what you're saying is that people experience racism, they call it out, and then the response to that is, you know, you're overreacting or, you know, harden up and all these sorts of horrific things that essentially what you're doing is you're telling people that they haven't experienced trauma. And then what happens is you have to constantly argue or convince people of the fact that racism is traumatic to you. And so essentially what people need to be much better at is just validating it and saying, I'm so sorry and I apologise and don't do the, I'm so sorry that, you know, you took offence to an apology or, mm. or that you took it this way apology. It has to just be, I'm so sorry and I feel your pain and then just 
stop the conversation. And I think that's what people often struggle with, is there's this constant justification or minimising of the impact of racism on Indigenous people, and then we're left to do the heavy lifting around it. You're listening to Women on the Line on your local community radio station, and I've been speaking with Dr. Tracy Westerman about racism, mental health, and suicide prevention supports for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Here's the second part of our conversation. Part of that heavy lifting as well is, and you've raised this in in your advocacy, around the need for broader transformation in the way that governments at both the state and federal level approach Indigenous mental health. So could you give us a bit of a take on the disconnect between what Indigenous communities and health experts like yourself are identifying as priorities for mental health and suicide prevention, and then what generally gets funded in practice? And also, how is progress with Indigenous suicide prevention actually tracked to assess efficacy for the things that are funded? I guess the first thing is that, frankly, they're just not applying the science of suicide prevention. So the first thing is, is that we're being too ambiguous about the causes of suicide. Colonialism is absolutely something that creates that they're what we call pre-trauma variables. But the difficulty with that is it's not something that, as a clinician, I can alter. Causal pathways should explain the why. Now, we have some of your listeners would be aware of the fact that every 12 months, the Australian Bureau of Statistics bring out the suicide death data. And I hate using the term data because these are people's lives. But essentially what they do in the non-Indigenous space is they analyse and have done for years suicide causal pathways. Now, what that means, if you can identify the cause, you can eliminate the end result, which is the suicide. So we know, for example, that 80% of non-Indigenous people who die by suicide have a psychiatric diagnosis of depression, often comorbid with alcohol and drug use. The knock-on effects of that are that if you can become really, really good and figure out the best practice treatments for depression, you can eliminate, the research tells us, up to 50% of suicide deaths. So we haven't actually taken that same approach when it comes to Indigenous people. So that's what we're going to be doing at the Junior Institute. We've just got a major research funding grant from Lottery West to literally figure out the suicide causal pathways for Indigenous people at a national level. What that then provides us with the opportunity of doing is significant. It enables us to determine treatments of best practice. It enables us to measure the impacts of programs. And most importantly, it enables us to gather robust national data about what's actually working to prevent suicides. So it's a pretty big thing. I mean, it all sort of comes back to one thing, really, but it has all these knock-on effects. And it does kind of speak to the lack of useful data that is being collected at the moment oh, about what works. Absolutely. And there's a couple of things that often people are shocked by, but there is still to date not one government-funded program that has actually shown that it's reducing suicide risk factors, suicidal mental health risk factors. And that's actually an indictment. So if government just did that and said, OK, the prerequisite now is that every funded program has to demonstrate that they're reducing suicide risk factors and mental health risk factors, we can then gather data about what's working. You know, the, the answers are actually fairly simple, but for some reason there's this absolute disconnect with applying the science when it comes to our highest risk Indigenous people. I guess where psychology fills that gap is that psychology is very much about the scientist-practitioner model. So everything we do, the science must inform the practice. People often, you know, struggle with that, essentially because how do you make culture scientific, right? It's a really, really, really good question. The answer is it's just a hell of a lot of work. And so what you need to do is test your models and again and again and again and again until you're really clear that 
your programs are having a measurable impact. So we need to be clear and data-driven about all this and then it will certainly fix the things that are going wrong very quickly. Yeah, and to support this work, you already mentioned that you got a Lottery West grant, but on September 10th, uh, which is World Suicide Prevention Day, the Western Mongolia Institute is holding a fundraising concert for Indigenous suicide prevention. So can you tell us a bit about what you've got in store for that and some of your fundraising goals? Yeah, so it's a really exciting thing for me. Again, it developed really quickly. So September 10th is World Suicide Prevention Day. And about three years ago, what I found horrifically was that despite the fact that we have the highest rates of child suicide in the world, Indigenous people were invisible on World Suicide Prevention Day. So I set upon a path to basically correct that. And what we're now doing is we're branding the Julia Institute with a major fundraising event each year. This year, it's just become incredible just purely because of the amount of support we're getting. So the University of Western Australia donated Winthrop Hall, which is a beautiful historical building with about 900 seats. And then we had all these incredible Indigenous artists, Gina Williams and Guy Gauss, Bo Jesse Pigram, who was number finished 12th in The Voice, Naomi Pigram, who's just an incredibly talented singer, Kobe Morrison. And then the final one was we had John Butler, who a lot of your listeners will know is an ARIA award-winning artist, sign up. And so they're all donating their time for this concert. And in terms of our aspirations, we're really hoping to be able to fund 15 Indigenous psychology scholarships this year from the fundraising from the concert from ticket sales. Yeah, fantastic. So for any of the listeners, obviously most of your listeners in Victoria, but there's lots of ways that you can contribute to the aspirations of the Western and Julia Institute and increasing the number of Indigenous psychologists. The first thing is just literally go on to the Western and Julia site. So Julia is actually spelled J-I-L-Y-A, and it's a registered charity, so every $2 is tax deductible, and you can make a... That goes straight into funding more Indigenous psychologists. And if you are in Western Australia, just get on to Tickets WA, literally Google Tickets WA, and the Julia concert comes up, and you can attend, underwrite the seats of a bereaved Indigenous parent to attend, which is actually a great thing that we've started with. We've got about 100 seats that have been underwritten for bereaved Indigenous community and people to attend the concert for free. Yeah, and we're hoping that very soon we're going to look at the option of live streaming it for people who can't attend. Yeah, fantastic. And for listeners around the country that are hearing this and aren't able to be in Western Australia, please, please do consider underwriting one of those tickets for a bereaved family member because I'm sure it will mean so much for them to be able to attend this event. Yeah, no, it certainly will. We've already had a really great response to that. So people... Even if you donate $5, the great thing about this is that, that we've had people, you know, donate $5 and say it's not much. But for me, it means everything. Every single dollar makes a direct difference to our highest risk communities. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us and taking us through this. It's been heartbreaking, but also shows us the really important work that that yourself and other Indigenous psychologists are doing in the area. Yeah, and I think that's what the Julia concert is about, is about there is light within the darkness, that this is black and white Australians coming together and saying these lives matter and they matter equally. And that's that's the message, really. Yeah.
The track you just heard was Kurndarm by Gina Williams and Guy Gauss from their album Kurlanka. That was a conversation with Dr. Tracy Westerman, a proud Nyamal woman from the Pilbara region of Western Australia, who is a renowned expert in Aboriginal mental health, cultural competence, and suicide prevention. As Dr. Westerman mentioned, you can find out more about and support the work of the Westerman Gillia Institute by heading to thegilliainstitute.com.au. That is the J-I-L-Y-A institute.com.au. Please remember that if you are experiencing distress, you can always reach Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. And if you're a young person up to 25 years old, you can call Kids Helpline on 1-800-551-800. That's 1-800-551-800. Both lines operate Australia-wide 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's all we have time for today on Women on the Line. Thanks so much for listening. Women on the Line is produced and presented by women and gender diverse people in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. Women on the Line is made possible with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for our show is by Ripley Kavara. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Priya Kunjan and tune into Women on the Line next week on your community radio station. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.